On Sunday, December 1st, 18-year-old Paula Jean Weldon finished her job at the Commons in Bennington College in Vermont. She had just worked two shifts at the dining hall, went to her dorm, told her roommate she was going to go out to take a hike on the long trail. Paula headed out around 2.45 p.m. She was wearing a red coat with a fur collar, jeans, and lightweight sneakers. It was cold, and even though there wasn't any snow that day, the temperatures were predicted to be sub-freezing by nightfall. She seemed underdressed for a walk in the woods, or she maybe only meant to be out for a short while. Night fell and there was no sign of Weldon, and although her roommate was concerned, she didn't Inform the college authorities until the next morning. The college president called Weldon's parents to see if maybe she had gone home for the weekend. Paula's father, W. Archibald Weldon, headed straight for Bennington from their Stamford, Connecticut home to commence the search for his missing daughter. 13-year-old Martha Alexander had disappeared. She'd been spending her summer at a girls' camp where she shared a room with a girl named Betsy. They were not friends, and Betsy didn't know much about Martha. Yet after failing to see her for a few consecutive days, Betsy visits camp leader and reports the disappearance. The staff call Martha's home, assuming she has made her own way back to her parents. But her mother hasn't seen her, and as a week has now passed since a girl's disappearance, a camp leader decides to call the police. But what follows is just a short investigation into Martha's disappearance. It seems like no one in the camp spent any time with her and amongst the staff. And the investigation draws to a close. People started to wonder, did Martha ever really exist? 17-year-old Natalie Waite longed to escape home for college. Natalie thought, finally, when she was away at school, she could be free of her sad home and her awful parents, who keeps a tight rein on Natalie. But once she arrives on campus, Natalie realizes college life doesn't bring her the kind of happiness she craved. Instead, it presented a whole new set of fears, anxieties, and personal tortures. And bit by bit, Natalie's world begins to unravel. Only one of these girls' stories is real. The other two? Products of an amazing imagination. Today, on Dead to Me, I talk about the disappearances, the real-life disappearances in the Bennington Triangle, and the mind of one of my favorite dead authors, Shirley Jackson. It's hard to know where to start because there's so much in this story that I love. Unexplained disappearances. Love it. The involvement of Bigfoot researchers in Vermont, which I am 100% here for. Side note. I spent a good chunk of my life as a child believing that I was either going to be killed by a tornado or a Bigfoot. So first I think we should probably talk about how awesome Shirley Jackson is as a writer and kind of as a human. It's funny, I just made the assumption that everyone knows who Shirley Jackson is and I realize maybe people don't. She's probably most famous for her book, Haunting of Hill House, in no small part because it's been made and remade into movies and TV programs. She has written numerous novels and novellas. Among my favorites are We Have Always Lived at the Castle, which is beautiful and haunting and sparse. She's famous for 
her short story, The Lottery, that's basically a 1950s New England Hunger Games. There's always the feeling when you read Shirley Jackson, or at least when I read Shirley Jackson, of when is the other shoe going to drop because that shit is going to drop. I was just blown away by how simple, um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in the best possible way where writing is done where you know that something is wrong but you can't put your finger on it. So as Maria in The Sound of Music says, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So Shirley was born in San Francisco in 1916 into an affluent family of noted architects. Her mother, Geraldine, was a hot mess and took it out on Shirley. A Rather Haunted Life is a biography of Shirley Jackson, written by Ruth Franklin. She describes Jackson's mother, Geraldine, like this. Just going to read from A Rather Haunted Life here. Geraldine fretted incessantly and vociferously about her daughter's lifelong struggle with her weight, making Shirley increasingly self-conscious as a teenager and beyond. Her mother was also critical of Shirley's writing, particularly the dark narratives, which she never understood. Franklin goes on, Geraldine endlessly heckled her daughter about the essence of who she was. Once, when a photograph of Shirley appeared alongside a book review in Time magazine, her mother's only reaction was to excoriate Shirley for her, quote, awful looks. One of the most interesting family members to me was Shirley's grandma, Mimi, who was a Christian scientist. And so I'm just going to take a little detour here to explain what Christian science is, because it's an important part of Shirley's upbringing, and I can't imagine how it wouldn't be influential on her work as a writer. So Mimi was an adherent to essentially faith healing, which is a tenet of at least the original Christian science movement. For example, Mimi claims to have broken her leg and then overnight using the power of prayer, healed it. But when Jackson's younger brother broke an arm and Geraldine and Mimi prayed over it, for some reason, it didn't work. But how'd Christian science start? In 1879, a woman named Mary Baker Eddy discovered the Church of Christ Scientist, or as it would become known, Christian Science. She was born to a family of devout Congregationalists, and this is back in the day when Puritan piety was nothing to sneeze at. She was a sick kid, and she lost a brother, her favorite brother, when she was only 20 years old. She went on to become a widow at 22 after only a year and a half of marriage. Then in 1849, her mom died, and then her new fiancé croaked. And her marriage in 1853 to Daniel Patterson eventually broke down. And they actually got a divorce, which is interesting given the religious nature of the enterprise and really the time period. So when Mimi was busy praying over her grandson's arm, Science was at its height and had its most members it ever had, was in the early to mid-20s. The Christian Science Church has faced a lot of pushback because these are the people that end up 
unfortunately, watching their children die of preventable diseases. And there's a good list of court cases that have challenged a notion of religious freedom versus child protection. But that position has largely shifted or at least is downplayed in the overall narrative of Christian science of today. While it doesn't appear in any official Christian science writings by Mary Baker Eddy, it's widely believed and well known that she actually conducted seances and used the Ouija board herself. Shirley's family relocated to New York State when she was a teenager, and she eventually went on to study at the University of Rochester. She was rejected from a sorority. She was awkward. She didn't fit in socially. And by the second semester at University of Rochester, the university actually asked her to leave. She ended up graduating from Syracuse. Eventually, she married and her husband, Stanley Hyman, became part of the faculty at Bennington College in Bennington, Vermont. The, the name Bennington Triangle is the nickname given by the paranormal author and researcher named Joseph Citro. It's an area of southwestern Vermont. Supposedly, somewhere between 5 and 10 people have disappeared between 1920 and 1950. This mystery triangle centered around Glastonbury Mountain, which includes some of the area of towns immediately surrounding it, and that means especially Bennington. The legends surrounding disappearances and strange happenings in the area go way back like a native legend of a man eating rock which is fascinating and i would pay a dollar to see that according to the bigfoot field researchers organization also known as bfro there have been a number of bigfoot sightings in vermont over the years and i know people typically think that the pacific northwest has a lock on the bigfoot operation in this country no all over the place gets around the first reported sighting of the so-called bennington monster took place early in the 19th century one of the most recent sightings in 2003 and the person reported seeing a quote black thing by the side of the road well over six feet tall and was quote hairy from the top of its head to the bottom of its feet so imagine how long it would take to coax a bigfoot into showing you the bottom of their feet good on you bigfoot cider so as far as the missing people go, while it was between 1920 and 1950, there was a real spate of like activity, people disappearing left, right, and center between 1945 and 1950. The first person to go missing was a mountain guide, a 75-year-old guy named Mitty Rivers. And he was guiding some folks through the area on November 12th in 1945. And so when he was guiding the group back to camp, apparently he got ahead of his charges and got out of sight of the group and poof, gone. Even though the guy was 75 years old, I mean, he'd been leading people out there forever. For him to just disappear didn't make sense. He was never found, not a body, nothing. And then in 1946 came Paula Weldon and we'll get back to her. And then in 1949, three hunters went missing in the area. There's not a lot to support these three, so we're just going to put them on the back burner. But again, it adds to the mystery. 
And then there was an older gentleman who supposedly got on a bus to Bennington in St. Albans and never got off. Then in 1950, the youngest person went missing. It was eight-year-old Paul Jepson, who was with his mother while she was doing some chores, and he disappeared from her truck, never to be found again. Less than two weeks later, a woman named Frida Lander disappeared. She was out with her cousin on a hike and slipped in some water. Her shoes got wet. She ran back to camp to change her soggy socks, and she was never heard from again. But of the people who did disappear, her body, in fact, showed up in a field the following spring. And so this is the place where we come back to Paula, because this is where Paula meets Shirley and where Natalie and Martha intersect. This is how Shirley Jackson's publisher tees up Jackson's novel, Hangs a Man. Hangs a Man is loosely based on the real-life disappearance of a Bennington College sophomore in 1946. little side note here is that the title, Hangs a Man, which I thought forever was Hangman, and I mean, that's after reading it, is from a suitably creepy folktale that goes back centuries and is called in some iterations, The Gallows Tree, or The Hanging of the Maiden from The Gallows Tree. More from the publisher. This is from the 2013 reissue edition. Quote, 17-year-old Natalie Waite longed to escape home for college. Her father is a domineering and egotistical writer who keeps a tight rein on Natalie and her long-suffering mother. When Natalie finally does get away to college, however, it doesn't bring her the happiness she expected. Little by little, Natalie is no longer certain of anything, even where reality ends and her dark imaginings begin. So that's from the publisher, but even as a reader, the similarities become clear. It's set at a liberal college, not unlike Bennington, and it tells the story of a young girl 17, going on 18, longing to get away from her home life, her sad home life, and her awful parents. And in Jackson fashion, when Natalie gets away to the very thing that she wanted, this freedom, it exposes raw nerves, basically and just kicks off a whole series of anxieties and really puts a fine point on Natalie's fears. And psychologically, Natalie starts to disappear. And again, in Jackson fashion, you're left wondering at the end if she really did disappear. So what did happen to Paula? What we know is that she walked out of her dorm and was never seen again, that she was going to be taking a hike, which is what she told her roommate. According to reports at the time in the local newspaper, the Bennington Banner, there were several sightings of Weldon as she made her way to the Long Trail. And the Long Trail is the actual name of the trail. One of the people 
was a gas station owner or service station owner that said he saw a girl matching Paula's description running up and down mounds of gravel in a gravel pit. And then, according to this attendant, she ran up and next thing he noticed, she was gone. One of the reports says that a bulldozer was brought in and dug around a bit, but didn't find anything. Then a man said he picked up a girl hitchhiking who, again, answered the description of Paula Weldon, that he ended up dropping her off near the entrance of the Long Trail, which was also near his home. Then around 4 p.m. or so, several residents reported seeing her about four miles east of town. Even a watchman at the banner said he saw a girl and warned her about heading out so late. Remember, it was winter. The sun sets very early and that she was underdressed for the weather. The following day, the school called Paula's family and her father, a wealthy, well-respected businessman, came up to help lead the search. So this was just after Thanksgiving, and it's worthwhile noting that Paula chose not to go home for Thanksgiving that year, and that was reportedly out of character. Some speculated in the news articles of the day there was some sort of falling out between Paula and her father, or just a family spat. Natalie did go home for Thanksgiving, but one weekend she decided she didn't want to go home. Her father sent her a sternly worded letter and 20 bucks and essentially said, unacceptable young lady, you will be coming home. And the next weekend, Natalie went home for Thanksgiving and sat around in awkwardness with her mother, father, and her one and only sibling, a brother. Paula was the oldest of four daughters of William Archibald Weldon. This next bit is from a 2016 article in the Bennington Banner by a reporter named Rebecca Robinson on the 60th anniversary of her disappearance. From the article, Weldon, an engineer who was well known in his home state, used his influence to call in the state police from New York and Connecticut because at the time Vermont did not have its own state police force and the search for Paula Weldon was disorganized and lacking in resources. So the representative, it goes on, the representatives from New York and Connecticut police departments took over the search. Those who had been volunteering to comb the Glastonbury wilderness for Paula switched their efforts to raising money for a reward, and they collectively raised $5,000. Adjusted for inflation, and I had to check twice because it's fucking over 66 grand in 2020 dollars. As the days went by, there was still no trace of Paula. There were a number of tantalizing and unquestionably strange leads that kept investigators looking, such as the claim by a waitress in Falls River, Massachusetts, that she had served dinner to an agitated young woman at the table who matched Paula's description. This lead struck her father as so promising he disappeared for 36 hours in order to follow it without telling anyone of his whereabouts until he returned to Bennington. This left some to point to Weldon as a prime suspect in his daughter's disappearance. 
Robinson points out in her article that because there was a reported spat between father and daughter the week before, resulting in Paula not coming home for Thanksgiving, made him look guilty to some. Not two weeks later, on December 16th, Paula's father packed up all of his daughter's belongings and returned to Connecticut. Nothing weird about that. So, God knows if Paula's father had anything to do with her disappearance. But I gotta say that if I went missing, my hope would be that my family would at least wait more than two weeks to just pack it on up and call it a day. So that might be where the similarities between Paula and Natalie end, or at least where any resemblance between Hangs a Man and the real-life disappearance of Paula Weldon come to an end. There's a lot we don't know about Paula Weldon and her family, but Thanks to fiction being what it is and Jackson being the writer that she is, we know everything about Natalie. One of the things about Natalie that's interesting is she found comfort outside of her contemporary group. She ends up befriending a professor of hers and the professor's young wife, one of his former students. And so Natalie spends time over at the couple's home on campus having cocktails and and so she found some comfort there. While there was nothing weird going on between the professor and Natalie that we can tell from the outside, there's this underlying feeling that something's going on. The reality is, is that the professor is enamored with Natalie's dad who is, as I mentioned earlier, a famous writer. And so in the end, we're introduced to a new character who may or may not be real, who may or may not be a ghost, who may or may not be some sort of imp that tries to make Natalie get up to all sorts of bad things, some of which could kill her. But you're left wondering what the true end of the story is. I mean, what happens to Natalie, really? And how about that 13-year-old, Martha, who goes missing in the short story, The Missing Girl? I mean, there's questions about whether or not she really existed, or more precisely, her family seems so uninterested, or she's an afterthought that when they realize she's missing, they wonder if she even really went to camp. But... We know how Shirley ended, and Shirley ended at the age of 48. She died in her sleep from suspected heart failure. Ruth Franklin wrote in her book, The Rather Haunted Life, that she found no real proof that Paula Weldon's disappearance influenced the writing of Hang the Man, nor was there any evidence that Jackson was influenced by Weldon's disappearance when she wrote the short story, The Missing Girl. About one year after Shirley's death in 1965, Stanley Hyman remarried. 
He remarried a young woman, a young woman who was a student of his at Bennington College. No judgment. My sources for this stretch back years to when I first fell in love with Jackson's writings, but specifically Ruth Franklin's A Rather Haunted Life was very insightful and although not the only biography of Jackson, I found it to be one of the most, I don't know, accessible to me. And the Bennington Banner proved invaluable. All the information on the various disappearances over the years, article after article. There were writings by Jackson's own son, Lawrence, that were also really helpful in piecing together the enigmatic short life of his mother. Of course, there's the Bigfoot Research Society. There's also a book called Passing Strange that has a lot of Northeast legends. And for the Christian science information, I really just went to Wikipedia and sort of traced my way back through all of the cited sources, but also just went through and read the actual Christian science website that provides a lot of information, videos, etc. on their beliefs. And I'm going to be clear that ain't got no problem with anybody practicing their own religion. I mean, I was raised Catholic, so baggage. Anyway, thanks for coming around and I hope y'all are getting ready for the most wonderful time of year, which is the Halloween.